Uh, if you have your Bible with you, please open it to Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. On our, on our church anniversary, I always preach the first sermon I ever preached at Grace and Peace. So that's fun. Um, slight changes. But uh, Galatians 1, 1 through 4. So back in 1963, the uh, Green Bay Packers came to training camp, and uh, they're also probably going to beat us by three points today, something like that. But they came to training camp after losing a heartbreaker in the championship game the year before. And, um, and all of these pro football players, they were gathering around eager for what their genius coach, Vince Lombardi, uh, was going to have for them. What advanced training, what next steps, how are they going to take the next steps, right? What's he going to cook up that was new so that they could win the championship? So they were so close. And so Vince Lombardi famously comes in to address his team. And he holds up a football. And he says, gentlemen, this is a football. And then he starts to proceed to tell them the basic way that you have to advance a ball down the field in order to score. He wasn't giving them advanced training. He was saying, let's return to the basics. That's how we go forward. In the same way, the book of Galatians is the Apostle Paul saying, this is a football. This is the gospel. Because the, the, church, the churches of Galatia, there, there had been some new teachers who came in with like this new cool teaching. They were like, hey, here's how you become super spiritual. And Paul had to write to correct it saying, no, the way that you go forward in your walk with Jesus is not through learning new things, but by grasping more deeply the basics, the gospel. So let's hear how he starts this statement, this amazing statement of the gospel in the book of Galatians. Galatians 1, 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Please pray with me. God, be with me as we open your word. Be with us that we would hear your message, that we would see with new eyes the depths and beauty of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. I once took a uh, solo trip around Ireland. This is back when I was single just backpacking, taking trains and stuff. And, and one of the places that I, I visited was in the country of Northern Ireland in the city of Belfast. Now, some of you guys are real young and you don't remember uh, something that was called the Troubles, okay? The Troubles was a, was a conflict of the, the citizens of Northern Ireland. Some wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom and the, the loyalist Protestants and then the, the others wanted to join the Republic of Ireland, the, the Republican Catholics, okay? And they didn't disagree about this in a gentlemanly way. It was, it was decades and decades of intimidation, kidnapping, terrorism, bombings, murder, and the rest of it. Thousands of people died, okay? And so when I was there, uh, this was 20 years ago, the troubles had been over-ish for several years at that point, but the signs of it were still everywhere. And I was walking through Belfast down a road called Falls Road. It was the dividing line 
between the loyalist neighborhoods and the Republican neighborhoods. And the signs of this conflict were just everywhere. On the left side, as I was walking the road, you had, you know, all of the, the, the Irish flag was everywhere. And there were murals of hunger strikers and all that sort of thing. And then when I looked on the other side, you know, there were these, these big murals of like, like guys holding AK-47s and stuff like that saying, you are now entering Loyalist Ulster, right? It was like, dang. And every few feet, there were like burned and bombed out buildings. There were these big poles with CC, stacks and stacks of CCTV cameras, right? Every few feet, there wasn't an inch of this place that wasn't under surveillance. And right in the middle of it, dividing the two of them, was this huge wall. I have a picture of it for you right here. I asked somebody, I said, what is that? They said, oh, that, you know what they call it? It's the peace wall. That's called the peace wall. It divides the, the uh, loyalist and Republican neighborhoods. And I said, oh, really? I said, why, what's all the, why, why, did it, why is it so high? I said, well, the, the first 10 feet is so you can't drive like a car with a car bomb through it. That's concrete. And then you have uh, 10 feet of, of metal, so you can't climb over it, right? There's not a ladder that, that'll, that'll do that for you. And then at the top, they, they have either wire or plexiglass. The reason was is so that they can't accurately hit each other with bricks. And sure enough, you look along the sidewalk, and there's brick dust everywhere, right? They're, they're trying. And, and when I, I was walking and there was like an entrance to the, to the neighborhood and there was like all these dodgy kids around a fire, like just standing there around like a burning pallet, like just, just watching who would come into the neighborhood. I was like, I'm not going in there. And the, the irony of this being called a peace wall hit me pretty hard, right? This isn't peace at all. In fact, there's so much conflict here that if there wasn't this wall, they, they'd go in at it. Start to think about it. We have peace walls everywhere. Think about this. Places where there's so much conflict that you simply have to wall it off. Locks on your doors. Right? There's not order, there's not harmony in society to the point where we, yeah, you better have locks, sometimes alarms. How many passwords do you have? Why do you have those? It's because there's people out there that would love to steal your identity, take all your money, ruin your life. You need those because there's not right relationship, there's not peace, there's not trust. Law enforcement and the military, very grateful for, for what they do. But recognize what it is, right? It's something that you need because there's not peace. You know, the irony of UN peacekeeping forces. It's like, yeah, we better send people with guns or else fighting is going to break out. One thing that's not as obvious, right? Have you guys heard of the big sort in the U.S.? As pe when people relocate, they're increasingly tending to relocate around people just like them that fit their demographics politically, age-wise, ethnically, and everything. Why? It's too hard to be around people that aren't like me. I've got to get away from them. It's a peace wall. It's a withdrawal from relationship. But it's not just like in the world. There's peace walls all over our personal lives. That phone number pops up on your phone. 
And you're like, do I answer this? No, silence. That relationship that you're like, okay, how many days of the year do I have to give this relationship to? Is that good? Right? We're, we're distancing ourselves. There's not right relationship with there. there. So we need a peace wall. Former friends. It's not just peace walls in the world or in our personal lives. There's peace walls inside ourselves too. The older I get, the more it's happening that something will happen that I'll remember something I completely forgot from my childhood and for good reason. There are places, memories of pain, of abuse, of loneliness, of rejection, that, are, that we're, we're not at peace with, within ourselves. And so we just try not to think about it, right? When we stop and think about it, we're managing so much conflict, whether internally, interpersonally, or, with, or in the world. There's peace walls everywhere. Now, it's better than open conflict, right? As we're finding out. But it isn't peace. You know, the, the word that we find in the Bible for, for peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And it's something so much more than not fighting, right? The, the, the Dictionary of Theology defines shalom as completeness, harmony, and wholeness. It's right relationship. It's, it's the state of that, that, that God intended at creation. Right relationship between God and man. Right relationship between human beings. Right relationship between human beings and the planet. Isn't it interesting None of us have ever lived in a world like that, a world of actual peace. We've only ever known a world of conflict and managing that conflict with peace walls, right? Yet somehow each and every one of us long for that world. Each and every one of us want there to somehow, some way, be a way for this conflict to stop and for things to be in right relationship. Why is that? If we've never seen that world... If that world has never existed in our living memory, well, it's almost like we're made for it. And we keep trying to get back to it. But is there a way back to right relationship, back to shalom? Well, I want to call your attention to verse 3, where Paul says, grace and peace to you. Did you notice that's the name of our church? Not to you, but grace and peace. <laughs> It would be like an emo band name, Grace and Peace to You. <laughs> People who like emo got that joke. But anyway, Paul, this is not a throwaway line. Paul starts all of his letters with grace and peace in the greeting. It's not just he, it's, he's observing a formality so we can get to the point. That is the point. It's key to his theology. His entire theology is contained right there. He's taken the traditional Jewish greeting of peace. And he pairs it with grace. Meaning, the only way we find peace is through God's 
grace. And you notice, it is not Paul's grace. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Paul wishing it to you. It's God inviting us to it. It's God inviting us to know peace through his grace. What grace do we see? Now, we could just read the book of Galatians, and there's a lot in there, but let's just look at the first four verses. Where do we see God's grace, and how does that lead to peace? Well, first of all, we see that God speaks, God forgives, that's second, and then God rescues. So God speaks. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle. Some of you guys may not know what an apostle is. Apostolos just means one who is sent, but it's something more than that. An apostle, think of like an ambassador, right, that represents their nation or, or a certain group. But it's even more than that. There's an old-timey English word. I don't know how many of you know it. Plenipotentiary? It means, right, that's why I didn't use it. Ambassador is easier. But what a plenipotentiary had that an ambassador didn't is the power to make a deal. Right? They, they could actually enter into contracts for the nation they represent. They weren't just sent with a message. They were sent with the power of the people who sent them. Does that make sense? That's what an apostle is. And so who is Paul sent by? He says, sent not from men, nor by a man. Meaning, I, I didn't come, no person sent me, and the by a man, it means no person appointed me an apostle. Paul's story is that he was a persecutor of the church who encountered the risen Christ on his way to persecute. And Jesus himself, the risen Christ himself, made him an apostle and sent him with this message. He says, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now what that means is that when we are opening the book of Galatians and the Bible, yes, it was written by human beings, but it is not human beings sent by human beings with a message from human beings. Instead, these, this is a message from God. The scripture that we're reading today and all of scripture is God speaking. That's the first grace that we see is that God speaks. Now, how is that a grace? And how does that lead to peace? What if God didn't speak? What if we didn't have the scriptures? What if God sent no one? Uh, last week, uh, or, or week before last, I should say, I was at a, a training for emotionally focused uh, therapy. It was an externship. And, and one of the things that they showed us uh, was this, this uh, experiment from 1977 called the still face experiment. Anyone ever heard of this? Yeah, Jess is already tearing up. I, it was, it's, it's painful. It's tough. So what they did is in 1977, when you can still do this sort of thing, I think, they experimented with what happens when a mother with a, a, a new baby, right, the first two minutes of this experiment, she interacts with the baby. The baby reaches for her. She responds, you know, smiles, talks, whatever. And then she turns around after two minutes and turns around with a completely stone face. Here, here's an actual picture of it, all right? And she just is completely still face. Don't be distracted by her being pretty. This is very distressing for the baby, right? For two minutes, the baby is trying to get her to interact, right? Is reaching for her. And, and very soon, the baby's in real distress. 
you know? Like, like turning away, like doesn't know what to do because the, his mom's not being responsive. And then she repairs the relationship, turns around again, and for two minutes interacts with the baby. Now, they actually had us do this with the people at our table where we would have to talk about, like, and this is hard to watch. If you ever watch it online, it is painful to watch. But, like, we were just talking, we would just talk to someone doing still face about what, we've, what we felt during when we watched this video, right? Because we, we had to watch it. And let me tell you, it is discomforting, right? And I knew it was just an a, a exercise, if we don't have the scripture, if God doesn't speak, what do we got? We've got a still face God. We've got a God that's completely non-responsive and detached. Right? Like almost everybody, even people who are non-religious, believe there is a God or a higher power of some kind. But here's the thing. How do you know what that God thinks of you? Does that God interact back? Is, is, does that God have a, 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 a plan to deal with evil? Right? Who is that God? What are they like? If, if God does not speak, what are we left with? You can, you can put your hope. You can put your faith. You can worship. You could do all sorts of things. But what are you getting back? You're getting a still face. Right? But we don't have a still face God. We have a God who speaks. Who not only that, who becomes a man and enters our world. Right? Like, God is not a still face. God, we, when we look at the word, what we see is God's plan to restore peace, to restore shalom. That's what the Bible is all about. He tells us about his heart for us. Right? We're left in no doubt that God wants a close relationship with us, that he cares about us, that he walks with us, that he wants to save us. We don't have a still face God. Our God speaks. And if we're going to get back to shalom, if we're going to move beyond peace walls, right? If shalom is the original intended state of creation, we need to hear from the creator. But when we open the scriptures and when we look around the world, something that's pretty clear is that we're not in right relationship. We're not in right relationship with God. That's abundantly clear from the Bible. And also, when we just look around the world, we're not in right relationship with one another. In fact, it's awfully hard to have right relationships, isn't it? Why is that? Why can't we just let everything go and be in right relationship? What's stopping us? Well, it's that there's wrongs done between us. Um, if you guys think our politics are rancorous now, you should read up on the, the election of 1912. It's entertaining. Um, now, of course, uh, Woodrow Wilson won that election, the Democratic uh, uh, nominee. But the, the real fireworks were on the other side of the ticket. And so you had the incumbent, William Howard Taft, who you probably know was so big he needed a custom tub. Yeah, I know. He was way more interesting than that. Uh, he was actually also the uh, head justice of the Supreme Court. Only guy to ever do that. President, Supreme Court justice. Anyway, it's pretty cool. He was the incumbent. And the person who was actually trying to get the Republican nomination instead of him was the president under whom he served, Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt only knew one way to take on an opponent, and that was viciously. 
And so he, he, he called Taft everything in the book, and most of it unfair. He said he was incompetent. He said he was corrupt. He said he was a moron. He was a genius, right? Like everything he could think of to hit Taft with, he did for a long time. He actually ended up not getting the nomination, starting his own party, the Bull Moose Party, and ended up splitting the vote so that Wilson won with, I think, 42% of the vote, right? It was, it was spectacularly entertaining for the, uh, for the country because not only were these two, two guys really prominent and served together, but they were really close friends, right? For, for, for years and years, they had been tight. So to see them fall apart, was, it was French page, front page, page news every day. After the election, Taft and his family went to visit the Roosevelt's at their estate. And they tried to make it just like it was before. You know, they had dinner, they told stories, tried to tell jokes, but just wasn't the same. There was a wrong between them. They were not in right relationship, and they couldn't pretend that they were. We've all been there. You know, some relationship where, where you've been wronged or you've wronged someone else, and you know that that's between you, and you wish it wasn't. But that relationship's not right, and you don't know what to do about it. And what the scriptures say is not only have we wronged each other, not only is there wrong between us, but that we've all wronged God. That there is a wrong between us and God, what the scripture calls sin. Now, when someone has wronged you, there's two options. Either they pay for it, or you pay for it. What do I mean by that? Well, let's say I go to Mark's house. Mark has a very nice hi-fi system with a record player. And I, you know, he puts on a record I hate. He's like, Eagles. And I'm like, no. And I just pick up his record player and I'm like, woo, dang. You know? And, and then I come to my senses. I'm like, oh, Mark, I'm so sorry. What have I done? I destroyed your awesome record player. Okay, there's two things that could happen. I pay for it. And he says, well, Matt, that's... I'll forgive you, replace my record player. Or he could say, let it go. You clearly were triggered by the Eagles. <laughs> and I'll pay for a new record player. There's no other option, right? Or if he doesn't get a record player, I still took away his record player. He's paying either way. So when there's a wrong done, either the wronged person pays or the person who wrongs pays, right? One thing, though, is have you noticed in relationships, and I've seen this play out, if you try and get even, right, that tends to lead to a never-ending cycle that we're watching play out on the world stage again and again, aren't we? When we have wronged God, if we were to pay for our wrong against God, it's never-ending. Right? It's, a, it's a debt we can't pay. But what if there was another option? What if instead of us paying for our wrong against God, God actually pays for that wrong? Look with me at verse 4. It says, uh, backing up to verse 3, it says, And the Lord Jesus Christ, who what? Gave himself for our sins. That gave himself is like given in payment of debt, 
That's, that's the idea there. He gives himself in payment of our debt. If someone is wronged, either the person who does the wronging pays or the person wronged pays. And in this situation, our wrong against God is paid by God himself. In fact, Paul makes this even clearer later in the book of Galatians. I'm just going to read you uh, Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that curse, which would be our rightful payment of our own wrong against God, Jesus takes and pays for us. What does God do to solve this wrong between us? He forgives it by paying for it himself in Christ. You know, it's funny. Sometimes, sometimes people throw around this word sinner like it's a big insult. Like, oh, I don't want to go to church. I'm told I'm a sinner. Right? And, and you know, there are like holier than thou people out there who are like, you're a sinner, suggesting that they're not. But sinner is like a prereq for being a Christian. You know, and if, if you like, if you're like, hey, I'm not a sinner. Isn't that great? Don't you want me to be part of your church? I'm like, no, um, you actually, we need to convince you that you are, right? Or else you, you've, you've exempted yourself from the grace of God. God pays for our sin. God forgives. And when we, when we receive that, it's God starting what is supposed to be a virtuous cycle of forgiveness, right? We are to forgive as we've been forgiven. One of the, the, main, one of the main steps of following Jesus is that we cultivate a forgiving and repentant heart. What do we do about all these peace walls, all these relationships that, that you know, they're strained, they're cut off? There's something between us and someone else. How can we bring peace? It is only through forgiveness. Now, I want to be clear about something. That requires real repentance on the other side. Right? Have you ever tried going to say, I forgive you. And they're like, I don't need your forgiveness. I didn't do anything wrong. It doesn't work. Right? You can't restore a relationship where the other person's not repentant. I also want to make clear that I'm not saying go take down all the peace walls and reconnect every abusive relationship that you've had in your life. I'm not saying that. We need peace walls. But the more that we lay hold of the gospel, the more that the grace of God impacts us, the more we receive and are convinced of the forgiveness that is in Christ, the more we release others from, from needing to, pay, to, to get payback on them. Right? And also, even if you don't reconnect a relationship, letting go of bitterness like, is, is, is a restoration and a return to peace all its own. But it doesn't end with forgiveness. Look at the next uh, verse. Or next part of the verse, I should say. He says, who gave himself for our sins to what? To rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, 
that present evil age, a lot of us are like, well, I don't know what he's talking about. There's something really, really key to understanding the Bible. It never gets explained in the Bible. It's just everybody knew it. it the Bible divides history into two epochs. The first is called the present evil age. It is all of human history that we have known so far. Oh yeah, look at that graphic. Huh? Is that descriptive or what? Um, and this present evil age is since the fall of humankind. It's this age of alienation, of racism, of revenge, of hate, of greed, of selfishness, of exploitation and oppression. Human history, right? But then there is an age to come, and there's about a hundred names for it. It's called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the last days, the eschaton, the uh, age to come, the day of the Lord. It's this, this day that God restores the shalom of creation and makes an end of evil. Now, the thing that was a surprise when Jesus came is that he did begin this, this last day's time, this eschaton, this kingdom of God. But for now, the present evil age continues right alongside it. They are both happening at the same time. Okay? The, the, the best way I can explain this, and some of you guys have heard this, others, this is your first time. If you've ever been at like a wedding or a party, and, and you know, back now it's just clicking on a, a playlist for the DJ. It's kind of cheating. I'm not impressed by it. It used to be you had to have two channels running, preferably of vinyl records, and you would fade one record out and fade the other in. Right, so towards the end of the song, you'd hear the new song coming in, right? And for a while, they play at the same time. Now, for this illustration to work, it has to, the, the song going out has to be a terrible song. It has to be a song that is so bad, it's like living in hell. Like, you know, like, uh, like if you go into a porta potty in summertime and, and it hasn't been cleaned for a while, that kind of a song. Like, like, um, uh, like, who let the dogs out? That would be a good one. Someone's like, that's my favorite song. I'm like, tough. It's terrible. You need better taste. All right. So who let the dogs out has been playing? And you're just suffering. Like, oh, make it end. I wish I was deaf. You know, and, and then the new song comes in. And it's, it's, some, it's a song that's like, you know, refreshing, that, that revives the soul. You know, a song, it's like, it's like being in the kingdom to hear it. And, you know, at, at weddings especially, uh, Dangerously in Love by Beyonce is about it. You know, da 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 Uh-oh, 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 no, no. You all love it. Don't pretend like you don't. It'll get the dance floor going. Okay, so imagine you're on the dance floor, and, and, and who let the dogs out has been going, and he's like doing the extended mix, and you're like, oh, kill me. You know, and then... And then Beyonce comes in. And there's that time where they're playing at the same time. Right? What that means is you have a choice. Dance to the previous song. Dance, dance to Who Let the Dogs Out. Or begin dancing to Dangerously in Love. Right? That's the same idea. Is that there is, there is this present evil age. And it has its life patterns. Alienation. Revenge and the rest of it. And then the kingdom has come. And there's a new life pattern that goes with it. 
one of right relationship, of humility, of forgiveness, of honoring the image of God in others, and so forth, right? The way it's going to be when, when Christ returns and makes a full and final end of evil. What it means is that we don't have to live the same way that has led us to all of this conflict that has resulted in the need for peace walls, that we could live a new way. Right, that we can walk the way of the kingdom. We could dance to dangerously in love instead of who let the dogs out. We desire shalom. And Christ has provided rescue from the old way. You're like, man, but everywhere I go, strife follows me. Right? And, you can, you can forget to dance to the new song and start dancing to the old one again, right? You're like, I'm, I'm cut off from so many people that I, I you know, I'm, you're just Heismaning your way through life and pushing everybody away because it's so painful to let people in. Or maybe you've got a heart that's so full of bitterness and unforgiveness that it's a prison. And you long for shalom. Well, Christ not only died to forgive us, but to bring us out of those old patterns of life and into the new when we follow him. And we forget all the time when we revert to old ways, but there is still that invitation to peace through God's grace. So God speaks, God forgives, and God rescues. If we want to know peace, if we want to begin living a life of peace, experiencing right relationship, we need God's grace. The book um, Unbroken tells the true story of, uh, of Louis Zamperini. They made a movie of it. It wasn't as good as the book. Read the book. And uh, for those of you who don't know the story, Louis Zamperini, he was from Torrance, California, Italian if you couldn't tell. He was an uh, Olympic runner, ran for USC first, and then, um, and then went on to the Olympics, competed in 1936 in Berlin. Um, and then uh, when the Second World War broke out, he volunteered for the Navy, ended up on a bomber crew. And the, the bomber was shot down over the, over the Pacific Ocean. He survived with two other guys, 47 days in a raft on the ocean. No joke. I'm not even giving away the, most, the craziest parts of this. And then they were picked up. They were picked up um, by the enemy and ended up in one of the worst Japanese prison camps um, of all of their system. And they starved the prisoners. Louis Zamperini, while he was there, was 87 pounds. They wouldn't feed them. They would, they would beat them. They would, you know, humiliate them. And there was one guy in particular, a corporal named the Bird, this guy, uh, who was in charge, who just was, there was something snapped in the guy, okay? He would, it was said that when he was about to unleash a beating on a prisoner, his right eye would droop and he'd go nuts on the guy, right? He'd drool and he'd like howl while he beat a prisoner and then hug them afterwards and promise never to do it again. Twist it, okay? And he had it in for Louis Zamperini because he was a famous Olympic runner and also an officer. And he made it his life's work for a year and a half to just make Louis Zamperini wish he was dead every day. Now, after the war, Louis Zamperini just tried to forget it. He wanted to move on, 
right? He got married to a really nice girl, lived in LA, but his experience of the war wouldn't give him any peace. He was enraged at all times. And he started self-medicating with alcohol and pills. And every night, he would have dreams of the bird. Either the bird beating him or him killing the bird. Right? He actually became obsessed with going back to Japan to find and kill the bird. That's the only thing he could think about. It got so bad that, that one night when he was having a dream about choking the bird, he woke up and his, his hands were around his wife's neck. In desperation, his wife went to see a young evangelist named Billy Graham who had come to L.A. And when she heard what he had to say, she, she forced Louis to go the next night. And he went, and he left halfway through. He couldn't handle it, as Billy Graham was talking about forgiveness in Christ. But he went back the next night, and he committed his life to Jesus. And that night, he didn't dream of the bird. And he actually never did again. He did go back to Japan, though. And he did try and find the bird who was in hiding. But it wasn't to kill him, but to forgive him. And he actually met with the other officers and prison guards who had tormented him all those years to forgive them. And he lived a life of peace the rest of his days. How? Through God's grace. We are invited to know God's peace through God's grace. Pray with me. God, may we know peace. May we be a people of peace. May we be a church of peace. God, I pray that you could show us how. That we would be formed more and more into the image of Christ who brings peace. In Jesus' name, amen. on the guy, right? He'd drool and he'd like howl while he beat a prisoner and then hug them afterwards and promise never to do it again. Twist it, right? And he had it in for Louis Zamperini because he was a famous Olympic runner and also an officer. And he made it his life's work for a year and a half to just make Louis Zamperini wish he'd be dead every day. Now after the war, Louis Zamperini just tried to Where forget. we share communion. He wanted to move and, on. Um, right? He got this married is a meal to a really nice girl, lived to in L.A. all who believe but and have placed their hope the and war, trust in Christ. Wouldn't give them uh, in Christ alone for their salvation. He was enraged and, at all times. Um, and he started self-medicating with alcohol and pills. Uh, the sermon and today, night, we see how... He would have dreams um, God of is uh, at work to graciously draw us him towards himself. And uh, right. we he actually give thanks to the work of the Holy Spirit that has been going on in our congregation uh, in it these last so seven years. That, that one night and when he was having a dream about choking the bird, he woke up to and be his, his